Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And it's Friday night lights edition of the podcast. It is. Where we have a convivial beverage. We and we, we don't we usually record in the mornings or, or uh, usually if we record in the afternoon, we don't have a convivial beverage. But Friday, we have for a bit. It's become a new custom. But th- we like to have one day a week where, we, where it does feel like happy hour. Right. It is a happy hour, a convivial right. Right. time of the week. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, do you want to, I mean, I know also part of our custom, I think now is also the apology. Oh, yeah, the apology. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, there's some, so this week's apology goes to uh, people in Egypt who believe in democracy. Um, when the current president uh, of Egypt, which you remember, he came to power over a, in a basically a military coup, uh, Donald Trump praised him and saying that such good friends and wonderful things he's done. And uh, so- all of you who believe in democracy uh, and human rights in Egypt, we apologize for that. And the fact, it probably won't be, but things like this, all, what we did yesterday, things like this, lesser things than that have started world wars. So um, on one level, Assad is a war criminal. He should be tried and executed. Um, are put away where the sun doesn't shine. Uh, Putin is a war criminal as well. When you uh, say the sun doesn't shine, do you mean Fairbank, Fairbank Alaska, Fairbank, where? <laughs> yeah. But um, again, um, and I'm someone who, you know, I, frankly, the fact that we've been letting Assad use barrel bombs against the civilian population. I mean, uh, two to three times as many people have been killed by Assad's regime than ISIS has killed. And yet our number one priority has been ISIS. And I understand that ISIS. Do you think ISIS, like, that's the motivating cry in the locker room? Guys, Assad has killed three times as many people as we have. I mean, come on. I mean, I know he does have an institution in the government, but I mean. Yeah. No, I, I tell you, I, I, um, yeah, I, I'm, I think something had to be done. Um, I think uh, what Obama did not do uh, with, with Syria is, is probably one of the biggest uh, uh, stains on his presidency. However, um, you as horrific as what we saw yesterday or that, you know, Tuesday from what happened with uh, the chemical weapons against the Syrian population, um, I think it's dangerous to change your policy. Now, again, there's a question whether or not Trump has any policy, but um, to suddenly go from being a non-interventionist to launching cruise missiles into a country – and the other question is, you know, the, fa- the fact is what exactly was done, uh, according to the Syrian opposition, airplanes, <laughs> fighter jets were flying from that airfield today, the one we hit. So exactly what was going on with that. Um, uh, that should be our you're welcome segment. Uh, you're welcome, uh, Assad, that somehow it seems there was a, a little bit of advanced warning of when and where the attack would take part. Right. No, I don't know. So help me out. I, I'm not. I, I'm not the best deductive reasoner. I'm not Columbo. Right. But what if there was a foreign government that had an interest in one of the candidates over the other in a presidential election? Because the president has would basically abdicate the constitution. The president can declare war to everybody once. Right. Okay? Right. So is it like? We, and then what happened? What about if that government was also tied in to the Assad regime? And then that's funny because you announce that you you you, you have the you, you get everybody in Mar-a-Lago and talking about responses, and then all of a sudden 
the Syrian army. I don't know, man. I can't put it together, Bill. I can't put it together. <laughs> I mean, something about it just it it, it escapes me. Like, well, well, we know that the Russians were warned, and again, I, I, I again, uh, we did not want to start a war of Russia over Syria, but um, you know, in a week where he, his approval ratings hit new lows, and the truth of the matter is that the world continues to allow, um, for the most part the Assad regime to butcher its own people. And it's to stay, it's, it's, it's a remarkably destabilizing, uh, the refugee is destabilizing uh, Europe. It's, uh, I, the fact that Jordan has survived over all these years is still no small miracle, but it's destabilizing the region, Turkey, uh, refugees in Europe, uh, what's happened with in Greece and all other places. It's just been a humanitarian geopolitical disaster. And, um, to be seen what happens next. You know what oh, Trump should have done about Syria? What I thought Obama should have done. Just drop in Chuck Norris. Do you know Chuck Norris once heard that nothing can kill him? So he tracked down nothing and he killed it. <laughs> While other children were playing in the sand, Chuck was playing concrete. Bill, do you know why there's never been a video game made about Chuck Norris? Now, why? Because nobody can control Chuck Norris. <laughs> send Ch- I've seen Delta Force. You send Chuck Norris over there. Yeah. Now, well, I heard that the boogeyman turns his light on it. Yeah, exactly, because of Chuck Norris. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So is this what I get for saying I didn't feel funny tonight? I get Chuck Norris jokes. I prep jokes. I got jokes. I, I don't usually do any material. I got jokes. And Don Rickles died this week. Oh, I no. That's – what a – Comedic genius, and and uh, you know what's funny is again I watched a clip of him and he's insulting. I mean, he's insulting everybody in ways that um, get professors fired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and I have to. I mean, again, I'm, I've laughed. I, I the, the stuff still works, and people laughed along with him. Uh, matter of fact, you're coming up and meeting me at the door with live podcast, Air Live, uh, Facebook Live, reminded me the time that uh, Johnny Carson, they, I watched that clip today where Johnny Carson went over and interrupted the filming of his show because Rickles the night before had broken a, c- a cigarette case. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, at any rate, before Facebook Live, there was, there was, there was the, the, the following camera. But at any rate, it's kind of an interesting uh, and, he, and he was working till recently. So Don Rickles, um, yeah, I, I heard on the way here, uh, he told a story. He's a, you know, he's a, well, he was devout. I was, I don't know. He was his Judaism was very prevalent in his life, and his father. He's very devoted to his father's mother. His father died young. And he told a story the day he was to get married. The cantor um, who he had grown up with, who was very close to him, called at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, <laughs> And he was in the lobby at the Lexington Hotel and said, come, come, you need to come with me. And, you know, what's going on? And they went to the grave of his father and they uh, sang the, uh, uh, you know, prayer for the dead. Um, and uh, he said, now we've blessed it so your father will be at your wedding. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, he was telling the story 50 years later and still got choked up. So, yeah, I, I kind of get choked up thinking about it too. So, any rate, so it has been a week that it is and um, – Life goes on here in the bunker, and uh, it does. We still continue to try to um, do what we do here and try to try to whatever that is. 
Well, this isn't the only thing we do. We try to we try a lot to, of things. Try to try to keep helping people. That's what we try yeah. to do. Yeah, I'm trying to stay out of my own way most days, which is not easy. Well, I, I, I that's why I, I got. I feel that's part of my vocation. Exactly. Life, to, to help you stay out of your I, own way. I would, well. I, and I'm so glad that, that, that. Then please let that never change. So, by the way, will you get like uh, get up at four o'clock in the morning, get a canter, and come sing over my grave? Would you do that for me? When I'm dead, you know. Well, of course, you're uh, not married. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get Billy Joel. <laughs> oh, that would be that would be. That would, that would be like putting a curse on my grave. By the way, I have to say this. Last night I saw Ann um, Wilson of the Heart, you know, the, the Wilson sisters, Ann and Nancy Wilson are part of Heart. And it was funny. And she actually still in pretty good voice. And the second half was all covers. It was pretty, it was fascinating. And I mean, she has one of the great voices in rock and roll. And I mean, some of the things she does with a voice at this stage of her career, the fact she can still do it. Matter of fact, probably most people have seen on YouTube their tribute to the, uh, the Heart sang for the tribute to Led Zeppelin at whatever they do, the American Honors or whatever. And their version of Stairway to Heaven is remarkable. Uh, so, anyway, I saw her last night. The second half was all covers. A friend of mine knew that went to high school with the drummer, so I got to go backstage with the drummer. And uh, he's a really interesting guy. I just said, you know, no, she just, she just, uh, uh, she's really a fascinating person, a great, great human being, and just uh, instead of the last tour, kind of this fading singer tour, still trying to do fresh things. And uh, I remember when I was in high school, my best friends, yeah, you know, we always would listen to albums, kind of thing. <laughs> Those of you that was back in the that, day, that that again, the album is like a, I mean, because of digital media, it it is an artifact that. Doesn't mean the same thing as it used to mean. No, I mean, so you got the album. He said, "You come here. You got to listen to this group." And of course, not only the album, but the, the but the artwork. And they were, you know, very beautiful women who performed in, you know, again when you're now less, you know, well older as less boy, you know, they performed in what looked like, uh, uh, you know, negligees or whatever. But they were a great rock and roll band. And and he said, "We got to go see them." And and I was listening to him, and I go, "Well, you know, they're pretty good." He goes, "No." We have to go see them. <laughs> and Steve Motes, wherever you are, uh, I, I got to see at least half a heart without you. So uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I was thinking about you last night. And by night. the way, this, so it's this intro to our topic for this evening, which, you know, I mean, this has been a, a weekend. We felt like we had to fill people in on, on where we, the NPW perspective on the week's events. But I actually signed an appointment in Phil, downtown Philadelphia and uh, because of it was, the weather was terrible. And so, I wanted to not take the packed trains, so it was like three, it was like three thirty ish, three four. So I I thought, well, I'm at Thirty Street Station, and to get to Suburban Station, which if you don't know Philadelphia geography, is the next train stop. It's like right. half a mile away, maybe or three quarters of a mile. Yeah. Uh, and but it was I'd walk it a lot of times and just walk around that that part of the city. But so I thought, well, every train out of Thirty Street going on this platform goes. To, to suburban. Well, there's one that doesn't, <laughs> and that's the one I got on. So I wound up at a train stop, the North Philadelphia one, which is not the Temple one, and not the. It's that weird one, slightly northwest, not far from the Keswick Theater, I don't think, or oh. at least up that way in that direction. It's the it's the whole. So I texted my wife Linda. I was like, I feel like I know Philadelphia geography pretty well. I don't even know how the stop works and the trains that go like so. Finally, it took it took me like forty five minutes. It was raining. I had to find a place to s sit and, and and I mean, by the way, 
I'll tell you that part of Philadelphia, north, slightly northwest, is lovely this time of year. If you're looking for a place to vacation and can't get Nantucket, go there. <laughs> I'm sure. Look it up. Airbnb, North Philadelphia train stop. Oh, it's lovely. Goodness. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. But as a result of the delay, I had lots of time while Bill was out gallivanting, and neither of us could be at the apocalypse. Um, by the way, the world is still standing. Tim Keller lectured. Oh. <laughs> so I had time to watch somebody uh, – uh, shout out to Ken Buck who very thoughtfully uh, couldn't do a video of it but did the audio because just the angle. So he couldn't – you know, it was a packed house. But you can hear all the audio. So if you've Facebook friend Ken Buck from New Jersey, Presbyterian minister, he it – was, it's was a really good lecture and, and thunderous applause. So I that that's what really scared me at the end, like the thunderous applause with Tim Keller. Now the, the at, at Princeton Seminary, now Christ really might come back. This might be the end times. Well, which the the Christ event would have to be the Christ the Christ event would have to come back. Exactly, yeah, exact the Christ. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> okay, everybody, Friday night lights, scotch is sunk in. Bill's making subtle Bart jokes. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's at least well, there might be 15 people listening that got that joke yeah Give, we have a pretty there are times we make jokes that only three people somewhere lost a library would, would yeah. get well, we have a lot of geeks listen to us theologically yeah. well wow, there we go so uh, um, Keller actually he started off very funny he said I, I, I prepared my talk before the controversy or whatever over Twitter is so weird and we think about like <laughs> but he just his his lecture was told a response to Leslie Newbegin. Not to be confused with Leslie Graham. No. No, Lindsay. <laughs> Lindsay. Lindsay. No, remember, Graham. I made Leslie, that Leslie, yeah, Leslie. Right. There you go. Leslie, yeah, that's Bill's nickname for Lindsay there Graham. Was an, it was a slip. Leslie. Anyway, go uh, ahead, yeah. So he, and basically he gave a great short kind of intro to Newbegin very quickly and talked about how Newbegin actually gave, I think, the Warfield lectures. His one of his early books, Foolishness to the Greeks, which was very popular, were the Warfield Lectures. And then th those were built on or based off of expanded version of an essay called Can the West Be Converted? And after Nubian had spent his whole life in India, he was back and forth in Europe and other things, but he, his, you know, he was the bishop, of the only kind of, I think, non-Indian uh, national of origin to become a bishop in the Church of South India, when they, which was we a, with a, all a, the a major ecumenical... Achievement. Yeah, so now, yeah. And, you know, he said, you know, I came back, retired from that. He, he and his wife took the train back through Europe and saw some of these places like in Armenia where there's no Christians and no, you know, just ruins of churches. And he was going, you know, through, he talks about just seeing, like thinking about the collapse of Christianity in certain parts of the West. And then he takes this teaching post, I think it's Selly Oaks Missionary College, and he's training missionaries and pastors. And he says, basically, we knew how to do this in India. Like we, we, we had to tell people you have to study the Bhagavad Gita, you have to study these sacred texts, you have to learn what avatars mean. You have to. Like, so it's part of when we train people, we train them the Bible on one hand and the culture on the other, and, and try to teach them how the. He's like basically our culture in England. He's talking about England, which was much more secularized at the time of the United States already. He's like the culture has radically changed. And our tra way of training people hasn't changed at all. Right. And, and his question in the first essay, which Keller expanded upon, was what does it mean for the church in late modernity to have a missionary encounter? 
with the increasingly de-Christianizing West, which is right. which you and I have talked a lot about in recent weeks. It's not quite the secular doesn't mean atheistic. I mean, there are new sort of spiritualities coming right. about, and so I think it was really interesting that Keller said. Now he said, you know, the mainline new, new he's right. Newbegin critiqued the mainline and the evangelical way of the churches. And he says, I'm a conservative evangelical guy, you know, giving this lecture at a mainline institution. And Newbegin says, neither of our traditions is really good at this. Right. And he went on to give a really fascinating address about what, you know, and, and Keller's a practitioner. He's not a constructive, you know, systematician or historian. Right. It's a really good, smart uh, analysis where he's a Bill, thoughtful, engaged pastor. Yeah. Yeah. And Bill. He lifted up Augustine as the key moment. Oh, it's really interesting because he said that tradition. I, I, maybe I, I need a better song for Augustine than what I just did there. Yeah, I don't know. Like, oh, all right. I was thinking Copacabana or something, but <laughs> I, I like Barry Manilow. Uh, yeah, I do. I'm not going to qualify that. I, I don't know why, but I do. Uh, so what he said was basically that. Keller, as a conservative evangelical, is so into his traditions into traditional apologetic strategies, especially like the kind of here's evidence demands a verdict and right. stuff. He says mainline people now, I mean, they almost like their throat seizes if they say the word apologetics. Right. And so that what Newbigin was calling for was a kind of apologetic that you see in the city of God, hmm. where he contrasted it to, he's like, look, I, I, I'm so, there's a role for traditional apologetics. He, he, Held up N.T. Wright's "The Resurrection of the Son of God" right. as, you know, hey, according to sec- according to the Academy's critical standards, the resurrection as a historian even seems like a plausible, maybe the most plausible. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because Tom Wright's undergraduate philosophy teacher, who he's maintained warm relations with, I heard him lecture at Princeton a couple years ago. He said when he sent him that book, it's Tom, this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't actually refute your argumentation. I still won't believe it, but <laughs> I can't offer you a counter. Right. right. The Keller said actually what Newbegin is talking about, we need more, is much more like an, a strategy like the city of God, where Augustine says, look, you have to have such a deep love of the culture and such a deep love of the culture's right. thinkers that you can actually say to the culture that based on what you want, a civitas, mm-hmm. you can't have it. Because you say in a civitas, everyone gets their due, and God doesn't get God's due. So there's some, there's something in, on the on the on the entry level of the project based right. on what you say a civilization is that on its own standards. But this is the way you actually can have a true civitas, um, and it's the civitas of God. Right. And so you you come on the ground, but you know you can't make a penetrating argument and analysis like that unless you first it's like Bart says about Schleiermacher you can't hate there unless you first love there right. and are tempted to love and love again and I was thinking like Keller sounded like it, there were echoes of Halik in it what he was saying about Augustine and, and Halik yeah. is the Halik Halik is our example I would say of the contemporary Augustinian that right, absolutely is so far engaged in the secularized rejection of the faith that he looks at them as the Zacchaeuses who are, f- are are far off but want to come closer, and he's able to describe to them, based on their own affections, why they should draw near. Yeah, I I, I do think you know one of the things that I've always said if you're, if you're, if you're not where you're at you're nowhere, 
And sometimes a lot of Christians try to be in a different century or try to, you know, try to create, you know, so we find out the Bible, there's not an error. So we try to come up with an inerrant church or, you know, or we, we, you know, hold, hold so tightly, you know, a kind of a worldview that protects us. But the interesting thing is, um, you know, I encounter the same kind of, uh, whatever you want to call it, narrow thinking among, people who don't don't believe. And, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about for God so loved the cosmos, and so we're supposed to love as God loves. So what does it mean to love the cosmos in which we live in right now? Yes. And I think that's, um, to me, it's, you know, it's, um, it's kind of funny. One of the things that was always interesting, I had, uh, you know, I raised four boys and the, you know, probably most of the trips, I mean, they all played athletics and, um, I mean, they all got hurt playing athletics, but probably the most trips to the emergency room was because of what they did intramurally <laughs> <laughs> in the basement around, you know, whatever. But it's, there it's, have been no, like, knock on wood, because these are sensitive mics, you can hear me actually knock Yeah, I heard you now. Uh, there have been no ER trips from the from bunker activity. No, no, this is much safer than... Uh, Although yeah. that's not completely true, because one day I was jumping rope last spring, and I something happened. I think I, I had an inflamed something on my foot, and I actually did go to the ER. I recovered, though, by a day and a half. I was doing yoga. But I did. It hurt so bad, I had to go to the ER. So, well, but I've that never, was actually not in what we're technically calling yeah, the bunker. That was past the curve. Yeah, I've never thought of jumping rope as a contact sport, but that's oh, a, it's the best overall. I mean, it's a you, one. one you, of, I know it's good. Yeah, yeah. Were you listening to Barry Manilow while you were jumping? No, rope? no, I was watching I uh, I, television. I, <laughs> <laughs> Cobra Cabana is such a great song. Oh my gosh! Anyway, but what, her name was that. <laughs> uh, my point being that. You know, they were tough on each other, but boy, you cross one of them or you cross somebody they cared about and they were, you know, they were the person's champion. Matter of fact, uh, they even defended ex-girlfriends, uh, which uh, they still felt an obligation. I like that. Them. Yeah. But my whole point is that we need to kind of love our culture like it's our brother or our sister. And, and there's a sense. And for what it is, not what we want it to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that means because we've, we've all been shaped by it. I, I do think sometimes. People who rail against certain things, there's a self-loathing. I mean, some people, the angriest, the angriest anti-Christians are people who are angry at the faith that either betrayed them or denied them or they gave up. And I do think sometimes we rail against the time we're in. And, and, and you know, frankly, it's, it's okay to be critical of the time we're in, but this is, this is, our, this is our dance and we have to kind of embrace the, the time that we've been given. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think – Part of, part of my impetus initially to be a historian was looking for an ideal stage or a, a way of trying to figure out stuff that was better than the time I was in. And I have a deep, I have a deep, deep appreciation for the, the tradition and for great thinkers of the past. But one of the things history teaches you is that there is no golden age, and that you know you've got to, you've got to, you have a, not even the fifth century not even the fifth century you have an obligation to do the best you can um at the hand of baton to the next generation I, I think most christians most churches have no no sense of that idea of legacy anymore I, which is remarkable yeah Barry Manilow has left a legacy that's for time sure. in new england <laughs> time in new england so yeah so new when will i see you again <laughs> 
So, New Begin. Um, oh, Mandy. <laughs> that's a man. That's a oh, you came and you gave that's what I've saying, taken. I'm saying there's a tradition here that's worth preserving. It's, you know, very, very, you know what I mean? Yeah. I am music and I write the songs. Right, oh my gosh, that is the make... worst song ever written. That might be one of the great karaoke songs. Oh, I've my. never done that. Oh, well, thank, thank something. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. So um, one of the things that New began in his book, Proper Confidence, which is, again, he wrote at the end of his life, and it's about epistemology, basically, but you know, basically talking about the, sort of the limits of certainty. And he thinks that both the conservative and liberal wings of the church have bought into the kind of what he calls the Cartesian era, Descartes, you know, kind of sits there and thinks, oh, gosh, what could I know if I had to doubt everything? Right. And basically, and then, you know, the cogito for, on those premises is not a bad argument. All I can, I can't doubt that I'm a thinking substance. Right. Maybe I'm in the matrix. Maybe I'm gas. Maybe it's, you know, like, like I, I don't know that I'm even, I even have a body, but I know that some, whatever I am is a thinking substance. Speaking of Brother Augustine, I think I've mentioned this on a previous, uh, previous podcast, he anticipates, uh, Descartes by saying, uh, because I forget, therefore I am. <laughs> yeah, and Descartes is really coming up with a new form of Anselm's ontological argument, sure, which sure. is the only kind of so-called proof for God's existence that philosophers, I feel like, still take serious, quite seriously. And, and my, But can I also say that Descartes is reacting to what was happening on the street well, yeah, because a lot of people are killing themselves. Charles, when Charles V, you know, gets killed and... Uh, and the hope of a more tolerant Europe dies with him. So, uh, just interesting things. I mean, no, well, nothing yeah, happens. Yeah, in because a, he's trying to figure out a new way th- for public life. Right. I mean, nothing yeah. happens in a vacuum. Yeah. So, New Beginning in his book says the phrase in his book, Proper Confidence, which is 103 pages. It's an ex- I recommend it for anybody that's thinking about it. Say it again. Proper Confidence. All right. Um, Leslie Newbegin. He says the phrases blind faith and honest doubt have become the most common of currency. Both faith and doubt can be honest or blind, but one does not hear of blind doubt or honest faith, yet the fashion of thought, which gives priority to doubt over faith in the whole adventure of knowing, is absurd. Both faith and doubt are necessary elements in this adventure. One does not learn anything except by believing something, and conversely, if one doubts everything one learns, if, if one doubts everything, one learns nothing. On the other hand, believing everything uncritically is the road to disaster. The faculty of doubt is essential, but as I have argued, rational doubt always rests on faith and not vice versa. Hmm. The relation between the two cannot be reversed. Knowing always begins with the opening of our minds and our senses to the great reality which is around us and which sustains us, and it always depends on this from beginning to end. Hmm. That's, and, that's amazing. Yeah, and he thinks that he talks about elsewhere in the book how basically like the way of science— the way a, the, a sort of armchair kind of unsophisticated way of looking at science is, you know, like object-subject dichotomy, you know, right. where the subject's saying the object. But, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the, obj- the, the, the object is a subject. It changes as right. we interact exactly. with it. And so he's saying that all-knowing in different ways and in different fashions, but all-knowing is much more like if I want to know you, I might ask you questions, but you might pose them back. And there, there's, a, there's a back and forth uh, – there's a give and take, so to speak, cheap ah, promo for my own new interview podcast. The new cutting edge interview program. Exactly. I give wish, and take. I wish Alcoa was still. I, I think you should let me like be like, um, like the announcer. 
But I, yeah, I would love that, and I would love if we could get a sponsor like like Give and Take, brought to you by Alcoa. You know, like I want like a, a old like Pittsburgh metal company yeah. or something. I don't, I don't want to be like brought to you by Squares or Blue Apron. You know, do you want to cook in your home? Brought to you by Alcoa. <laughs> we make metal. Uh, uh, we used to make metal. <laughs> we used to. We, we we'd love to make it again, but we can't. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that that like so. I think that all of us, whether we're people of faith or not, or people that would say. Or there are people that would identify as people in religious communities or traditions or people who are outside those kinds of things, kinds of communities, are people of faith. I mean, we, we most of us think that, that the fact that the genders are equal and should have the same kind of pay, most of us believe that, I, th- I think, I hope, in, in this country, as opposed to an approach in some more traditional non-Western societies right now. But if you said, well, this is just true. Well, it, it is. I think it is true, but yet it, there's no, where's the physics, you know, or uh, yeah, equation or something. It, there, there's a complex, but I think it's not silly. I think, it, you know, it, it's, it's where there's to say a, that men and women should get equal pay for equal work. is not a silly preposition proposition, right? But it's but not indubitable. You can't prove it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't prove it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in a mathematical way, yeah. What we came up with three kinds of doubts today. And, oh yeah, yes. Yeah. And I and I forget. Therefore, I am uh, exactly exactly right. what we said. I remember. I remember my mine. I couldn't remember your. Oh, doubt. I know. So I said the problem is, and I think Keller was kind of. And Newbegin certainly says that this, and Keller was kind of echoing. Newbegin says that, you know, the strength of the kind of fundamentalist or conservative tr- tradition is conviction, right? right. Which you know, he said, but its weaknesses kind of not in lack of being open to new things. He says right. that the liberal religious tradition, its strength is its sense of openness, and yet it's kind of you know you, you can't doubt everything. I mean, you, you need certain commitments in order right. to even be, doubt or believe new things. So I, I was saying, I think too that like my shorthand for that is like in a lot of conservative communities you demonize doubt, right? right. And in a lot of progressive communities you valorize it. Like unless you're cynical and like, oh, that's passe or that's kind of you know. They, but we, you said we need to humanize it, right? Yeah, I think to 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 think, to believe, to love, to exist is to doubt. Um, but that's exactly where faith becomes interesting, and actually, in many ways, that's become that's where life becomes interesting. Absolutely. Until next time. His name was Rico. 
Let's go.